Slavoj Zizek, thanks for taking the time to join us. The pleasure is mine. Thanks. Your, your book, Sex and the Failed Absolute, you're here to talk about it. Tell us about it. What's it about? Uh, that's the irony of it. It's not a political book or even book about actual topics. I'm tempted more and more to return to big metaphysical questions. Quite in a quite naive way, like, is there an absolute? What do we mean by it? What is the ultimate nature of reality? And so on and so on. Something interesting was going on in philosophy in the last three, four decades. All these, let's call them naively, big metaphysical questions were left to natural sciences or cognitive sciences. Today, if you want to ask a question, is the, does our universe, does it have a limit or is it endless? You ask quantum cosmology. If you want to know, do we have a free will or not? You ask uh, evolutionary biologists or um, cognitive scientists and so on. I think uh, when philosophy got caught in this deconstructionist historicist mode, analyzed discourse strategies and so on and so on. And in a quite naive way, I try to approach this problem in the book. But I'm still, I'm not turning spiritual, I'm a radical materialist and so on. So I begin in a quite naive way. What will you usually mean with contact with the absolute is usually, for most of the people, is some kind of a transcendent, ecstatic, divine experience. I, of course, discount that. Then you have a Marquis de Sade, radical materialist version, since all reality changes all the time, everything that, 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 uh, that is generated falls apart. Absolute destruction is the only, our only contact with the absolute. Then you get other versions and so on. And I propose, but all depends on what do you mean by absolute. I propose a very simple but crazy answer that is sexuality, but be careful here. Not in this dissolute sense, a good F, where you are all in it. That's where I feel absolute. No, what interests me about sexuality, human sexuality, as opposed to animal mating, it's precisely that it's always linked to an impossibility, to a failure. And uh, I think we experience something like an absolute, and by absolute I simply mean something unconditional, that you cannot resist, you, that's it, through a certain mode of failure. And then I try to elaborate these uh, failures and so on already. For example, maybe this will amuse some of the people, the examples that I give, I think, so in the book, uh, I hate the movie. Incidentally, it's uh, four weddings and the funeral. You know, Hugh Grant declaring love to Andy McDowell. Again, to avoid a misunderstanding, I hate both of them. But you know that famous point when he declares love to her, famous scene, and of course, in his own affected way, it's not authentic, of course, he stumbles all the time, fails to interrupt himself. But nonetheless, the, in the paradox is that the... His love declaration is meant to sound, I will not say it sounds authentic, precisely through the failure itself. 
if he were to be able to simply give a smoothly running declaration, you would have said uh, he was trained like this, it's artificial, and so on and so on. Okay, this is love, not sex. But I think, and I try to, again, develop through many examples and so on, I think that ultimately with sexuality it's the same. It's how to organize your failure. And you know what? One of the most famous lines of Samuel Beckett. Try again, fail again, fail better. Do you know that when he was young as a psychologist, Beckett, the real Beckett, uh, was uh, doing some work as helping adolescents in sexual troubles and so on. So I always try to Imagine how he got an insight into this paradox. Let me give you another example that I like to use. It's also in the book, I think. Uh, the uh, and I use it often in public talks. The uh, 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 why is French cuisine for some people, not for me, so great? As a French guy, explained to me because all the big things of French cuisine generate are generated in a failure. Like, you wanted to make an ordinary cheese, you were too sloppy, it got rotten, and they said, oh my God, we now got camembert, or all those bad smelling cheese. Or, you were doing wine, wine, you did something wrong with fermentation, or we got champagne, and so on. I think that uh, this is, even I would have said, the structure of our human creativity. And uh, so, my, I'm again not an idealist, metaphysician, my experience is this one. The great thing about human beings is things happen to you in a good sense, which shatter you. It's shocking, you know, like you, you are immobilized. My God, that's the real thing. And uh, uh, that not work as old-time Marxists would complain that sexuality, passionate love, works like this. Are people aware, for example, how difficult it is today? That's why it's no longer fashionable to feel real sexual passion, not this one night stands and so on, all virtual sex. Imagine you live a nice life. You lead a nice life. You uh, drink with friends, maybe one night stand here and there, whatever, and then you passionately fall in love. All your peaceful reproduction of daily life is ruined, you are obsessed by it, and so on and so on. And that's already an insight which you find in Freud. How uh, uh, far from being low biological and so on, our intense sexuality is the metaphysical moment. Metaphysical in the sense of something happened which disturbs, cuts short, whatever, interrupts your daily rhythm. And I think then, now it may sound a little bit crazy what I'm saying, nobody's developed in the book, how all our other, let's call them high-level spiritual experiences, scientific knowledge, uh, even political practice and so on, are grounded, this is what my friend Alain Badiou calls event, are grounded in erotic event, in the sense of it's not life as usual, 
It's an interruption. So moving away from the book then, right here at the moment in London, it's interesting to hear you mention politics because a question that we're discussing at the moment is the relationship between language and reality. So, for example, you've been called the most dangerous philosopher in the West before. Which was meant as an insult. Yes, and a lot of people in the UK at the moment have been talking about the language used in Parliament as being dangerous. I know. I, you know What's your here, assessment it then? It may surprise you. Although I am almost always a little bit obscene and so on. I nonetheless think that one should be very careful here. I believe in appearances. You know why? Because I've written about it when I was young, very young, 68 revolution and so on. The idea was that those in power speak this false dignified language, patriotism, values and so on. And it was considered subversive to use the effort publicly to talk dirty as if you are subverting the established authorities. But as uh, you should get her here, uh, uh, the, the Irish theorist uh, uh, analyst who now lives in Brooklyn. Angela Nagel? Yes, yes, yes. As she developed in a nice way, I, not always, but here I agree with her. Basically, strange thing happened with alt-right and so on now. They triumphantly reappropriated this dirty, indecent, shameless way of talking, and as a reaction, it's a catastrophe. The left moved into tightly controlled political correctness, so that you have to worry all the time about, was it insulting if I use this expression, that expression, and so on. Some of the friends here are telling me at different universities. The last one was my friend, the German philosopher Frank Ruda, who works at Dundee University now, that all professors have their obligatory classes, Sensitivity training, they call them on specifically what kind of jokes you are allowed to use, not to offend anybody, and so on and so on. So, uh, aware of all this, I think that maybe, not in any prudish way and so on, but nonetheless, maybe, just maybe, the left should adopt this position of, I would be quite manipulative here of, we are the true moral majority today. And if you ask me, you know that the right-wingers are the true, as it's obvious now, with Trump, with Boris Johnson, isn't the big shock that again and again you think they reached the limit, how low they can go. Like now, uh, Boris Johnson, two days ago, with that Joe Cox or whatever, the best tribute to her would be to do Brexit, which is an incredibly cruel, tasteless irony, or what Trump is serially doing, and so on. You know, what is so depressing that here liberals made a mistake. You remember in Trump's electoral campaign before he was elected, again and again the left... Uh, left liberal, not true leftist, critics claimed now he, fin he is finished. He, as they put it often, repeatedly, shot himself into his own knee. No, it didn't hurt him. I think this is the most dangerous part of the old right, that they establish a kind of obscene solidarity with so-called ordinary people. You see, we are basically like you. You see, we are common people, vulgar like you, and so on, and so on, and so on. And in some of my books, I 
I forgot in which one, I developed of how dich, there are too many, I know. I developed of how, how many people who even pretend to be authentic Christian conservatives and so on do this. I don't know if, okay, my guys who listen to us now probably will not know. I was told by my Polish friends, and then I checked it. It's all true on the web. You can see the clip and so on. Kaczynski, the real master of Poland today, Catholic conservative, was asked in one of the previous elections when his party won, he was asked, what's your plan? How will you govern? And his answer was, in very vulgar Polish, for the public TV, teraz kurwa mi. Which means to translate it descriptively, now it's our turn to fuck the whore. It's a vulgar military expression, you know, this archetypal scene, it gives me creeps. Uh, a prostitute, soldiers waiting in line, and then, oh, now it's my turn to... And everybody was shocked, they thought it's a mistake, and he insisted on, no, that's what I meant, and so on, and like, what he meant was, of course... Our plan is to take full advantage of ruling, to do it, and so on, and so on. So and what should the answer from the left be? <coughs> I think uh, that I am... It's not... But what I'm... I'll put it more in a conditional way. I should be tempted to say that we shouldn't be afraid to give this message to the people. And in a refined way, I think... Jeremiah Corman, Corbyn, sorry, mm. who is Corman? Don't ask me to explain this Freudian sleep, was doing it. Because, you know, Corbyn is not even especially, why did he, in the last big elections, did, although Labour Party didn't win, surprisingly well. Mm. I think people, ordinary people, sensed how in contrast to all those Tory guys, obscene, twisting words, he was simply perceived as a decent guy. Don't underestimate this. Paradoxically, his very lack of mega-charm charisma was part of his strength. And I wouldn't be afraid. I almost liked what was happening in the last days in Parliament and so on, where we saw the real distinction. It's not dignified conservatives. No. Labors are people with minimum of decency, shame, and so on and so on. This thing happened in a nice way in my own country already some 20 years ago. We had the debate about uh, same-sex marriages and all that stuff. And a member of our part, of my ex-party no longer, uh, 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 a lady argued for same-sex marriages. And then a conservative nationalist, member of parliament, did something in the style of Trump or Boris Johnson. He said publicly, with of course an evil smile, is this woman a woman at all? We should call a doctor, he used these words, to inspect her between her legs and see what kind of strange organs she has there, and so on. And then come the moment of truth. It was so clear, camera was jumping and so on. The right side of the parliament, they simply took it as a joke. They laughed like crazy and so on. The left part, it's not even that they protested. They couldn't believe their ears. They were just embarrassed and so on. You know, like 
you don't do this. I think, I know it's a problematic thesis and so on, but I think the left has a unique chance to get quite many new voters by telling them, you see, now the right-wingers, if you worry about moral decay, obscenity, sorry, it's the right-wingers who are this. I already advised this to my friends uh, when I was young advised, who was I to advise them, with Ronald Reagan and afterwards when the Republican motto was family values. And the usual left reaction was, yes, but some people are excluded. This is a patriarchal notion. What about, what about gay marriages and so on? And my idea was to follow also another line, because in the experience of many ordinary Americans, as a friend of mine, sociologist, told me, if you look closely, you see that Reaganomics, with its catastrophe of uh, uh, the whole workplace culture and structure was changed. Many new women employed because uh, the husband was unemployed and all that. that Reaganomics did, did more to ruin family values than all the gay or whatever propaganda together. So, of course, we should in any sense play homophobic cards, but don't be afraid to address this modest, ordinary, decent people whose point is simply that uh, they worry about minimum decency and so on, how to survive. Let's not be afraid. Maybe you find this problematic, but I think we should not be afraid to do it. And again, I think that precisely part of the, we will see what is happening now. I don't know the situation well enough in here in the UK with Labour Party. I think that nonetheless, unfortunately, their indecision, avoiding to take clear positions, it's pretty catastrophic. Because isn't the big rule of politics, even if, I'm very cynical, even if you don't know what you want, at least act as if you do, do know, pretend, and so on, and so on. This was pretty catastrophic. But in spite of this, the relative revival of Labour Party under Corbyn. This was a beautiful surprise. Everybody thought, uh, a left lunatic is in power, there will be marginalist. No, they did well. It's also up to a point because of this. And I have another displaying on the common people's decency, and it's the same, I know. I didn't met him by pure chance. I know people around him because, uh, very strangely, Burlington, Vermont, is... One of the few places in America where my friends, Lacanian cultural theorists, are in power. They run at least one university department. So I often go there, and Burlington is the seat of Bernie Sanders. Yes. No? And uh, they told me that he is, that's the true secret of his success. Not that he will seduce those who would otherwise vote for Hillary Clinton and so on and so on. He got people who otherwise would have voted for Trump. What do you think the significance of Lacanian psychoanalysis is at the moment? In the moment? I don't believe in immediate practical efficiency, like to be... Uh, to be a successful leftist politician, you need to read Lacan. But I think that things that we are witnessing today, which can at least partially be covered by the notion coined already by, I don't know who it was, 
of the old Frankfurt School, Adorno or Marcuse, crucial notion of uh, repressive disublimation. You disublimate, you get direct vulgar, but it's not liberating. It's even worse oppression. That's, if you need want one example, Boris Johnson is repressive disublimation at least purest. It's disublimation, you are vulgar directly, but all the oppression remains there. And these are the paradoxes today. For example, what I learned from Lacan for our analysis is how totally wrong Dostoevsky was. It's one of the big things that I hate about. I'm not a fan of Dostoevsky. Uh, when he said, you know, okay, he, one of his heroes with Dostoevsky, it's always more ambiguous. If uh, there is no God, then everything is uh, permitted. And Lacan turned this around. No, if there is God, then everything is permitted. Because if there is God in this strong sense, fundamentalist sense, there is God and I act as his instrument, then who can oppose the will of God? Everything is permitted. And so uh, all these paradoxes of, for example, uh, 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 how, how does so-called, I don't like the term, it's too general, things are much, 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 much more refined. How does totalitarianism work? How ordinary people are seduced into it? Or even the other side of the same phenomenon. Why did sexual liberation permissivity, at least relative permissivity, why did it not bring more free, spontaneous, fully enjoyable sexuality, but obviously gave rise to new, uh, to new obstacles, oppressions, because we live in permi uh, per permissive era, but at the same time, everybody knows, never there was so much impotence, frigidity, and so on and so on. All these paradoxes, psychoanalysis can do it. Because we live in crazy times when, again, things turn into their own opposite. Absolutely. And you tested those ideas in your reading of Marx against Jordan Peterson re uh, recently. In Sorry, again? Jordan Peterson, Jordan P. Peterson? Yeah, but I think I, that was another thing. Let me explain, because many leftists are telling me, why were you so friendly towards him? You should have cut his balls. No, I knew what I was doing. My point was, because he is painting all the time, leftists, his enemies, as some kind of politically correct fanatics and so on. And I want to show how, no, sorry, you can be a nice civilized guy and so on, you can get the message through. And my secret goal, and proudly I can say I, from the reactions that I got, I succeeded, is that my secret message was to his fans. Quite frank, it was, of course I disagree with Jordan Peterson, but there is, as it's always with efficient ideologists, a grain of truth in what he's saying. Like, I agree often with him when he criticizes this simple victimization, become responsible, stand on your own legs, and so on and so on. And my message to them was, sorry, we left-wingers can do this even better than, than conservatives. We are... This is my, my, my secret political projects. 
We are not those whining liberal leftists whose point is, yes, we are all victims and uh, we all need psychological advice. No, we also like strong personalities, strong, not in a masculine sense, but strong. And I go here t- to the end, I, you know, w- where I got a lot of hatred. I, uh, I, you know, when it was that notion rendered fashionable of, it brought me many enemies. You remember that polemics about toxic masculinity. Many of my leftist friends, oh, big victory for feminism. I'm opposed to that notion. I'm all for uh, 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 women's rights and so on. But look closely at this notion. First, what it does. Toxic masculinity, what we mean by it. Violence of men against women. Toxic, so-called toxic masculinity is now a medical category. So, in, and it was proposed as a category by a psychological association. And, you know, in the United States, where we, you should never forget their health industry, it's two to three times uh, defense industry. It's the strongest brand. So, when something is admitted, recognized as a medical category, it means billions of dollars in new pills, health, and so on. So what I'm saying is that that's the first mystification. The, uh, the, uh, something which is obviously a social ideological category. If I beat my wife or women, it's not simply a psychological illness. It can be, but mostly it's a form of brutal ideology. And, you know, it's a social ideological foundation. That's the first mystification. The second mystification that I didn't like is if you read closely the definition of toxic masculinity, it's done even in general neutral terms. The claim is that men, mostly, when they are in a difficult situation, instead of talking with others friendly, they withdraw into themselves and react decide to act alone in a radical way, even if it will hurt them. But sorry, in many situations, you need to act like this. It's called simple courage, my God. You know, and so I think that the secret trick of this category of toxic masculinity is to promote a very precise, I'm almost tempted to say, uh, masculine cliché about women. Women like dialogue, they are, they, are, they are friendly, non-violent, and so on and so on. Sorry to jump, but maybe this will be of some interest to our listeners. That's why I, in spite of, I'm afraid a little bit, will she be manipulated or how? But that's what I like about Greta Thunberg, that girl. She is, if there ever was a person who speaks with a certain hatred, with Almost, I would say, what they call toxic masculinity, it's her. Autistic and so on. We need autistic women like that. Because her message is a beautiful one, nonetheless correct. She is not saying uh, we should understand more and so on. She doesn't pretend to know. Her message is just science is telling us clearly many things. And our usual reply is this, what I would have called fetishist disavowal. I know very well, but we know, but you cannot solve it so easily. We have to be patient. And then we do nothing. And her message is simply take science seriously. 
act, do it seriously, and she's telling this in a very violent, brutal, even way, that's what I like about her. She's not this caricatural woman, you know, like, uh, soft, let's have a dialogue. No, fuck you, what dialogue? Act, and so on, you know? That's the women that I like. And do you think that's why she, a lot of the criticism she receives yes. is typically from older men? Yes, yes. Not all, and also from, from mostly men who pretend to be pro-feminine, but secretly what they try to install is a certain, still, male chauvinist notion of, you know, this, this is for every self-respectful male chauvinist today. They will never, they will even celebrate women. They will say, we men are too violent, too aggressive. We want to dominate nature. Women, they have more uh, dialogic relationship, collaboration, and so on, and so on. I think in a subtle way, under this false celebration of femininity, a new form of conformist ethics is installed. Uh, as my friend Alain Badiou developed in today's state repression, a certain manipulated figure of femininity plays a crucial role. Like, but you had an adopted son who had some minor trouble with drugs, crime, minor crime, and so on. And then he was put in front of a judge, and he noticed how the way oppressive Arab apparatus is dealt, it's usually the investigator or judge is a woman understanding, but nonetheless, full figure of authority, and even in business and so on, you know. So, again, uh, what is so fashionable today is to construct a certain image of femininity, which is ideological construct, as you know, more gentle, dialogical, interactive, uh, 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 and so on and so on, which fits perfectly today's global capitalism. Let's never forget that even when today's capitalism is still patriarchal, it nonetheless constructs a certain figure of femininity which fits it perfectly. So you see, that's what we should do as critique of ideology today. Let's not get caught into this trap, toxic masculinity what? Let's analyze it precisely. What is sold to us as a critique of toxic masculinity? What image of femininity is subtly imposed on us in this way? To bring it back to climate change and Greta Thunberg, yeah. do you think that climate change, the ecological collapse yeah. of our planet. Do you think that is the most significant political crisis that we face? Because we opened this interview. I think we have three crises, nonetheless. I'm careful. One is ecology, but as I emphasized also with my unfortunate debate with Jordan Peterson and so on, it's nonetheless important not to fall into this trap of this, how should I call it, uh, preemptive, too fast fascination with the catastrophe. The uh, the example that I mentioned even in Toronto in the debate, I remember when I was younger, some 30, 40 years ago, the big slogan in Europe was Waldsterben, forests are dying. And you had all the charts saying, you know, precisely in our time, 2010, 2020, Europe will be without forests and so on. As we know now, 
forests, there are now more forests than at any point in the last hundred years. But I'm not saying absolutely not that we are, don't live in extremely dangerous times. I'm just saying that it's not, the process is very complex and this is what makes it even more dangerous. It's not so transparent, clear and so on. For example, at another point I tempted, horror, horror, lynch me if you want, to agree with Jordan Peterson when he said that publicly and later he told me he would worry more about what goes on in the depth of the sea, then we focus too much on the air. The, you know, those coral reefs dying. Yes. And all, we even don't know this maybe because, you know, we all know about this link chain of food and plankton going. We cannot even imagine what's going on there. Because, you know, uh, uh, I think that we should maybe change the formula. The problem is not global warming as such. This is one aspect. And then you can always play with statistics and so what, it's half a, uh, it's, uh, half a degree more. The problem is the distribution of it, how we all know and we witness it, how extremes are growing. You don't get only more heat, you also get more cold and so on. You get, so the moment you play with average, you can say, but nothing horrible is happening. No, the distribution is a problem. You know what's our also problem is also that we look at it from our Western perspective where uh, for us, Catastrophes, so-called terrorist attacks, or, uh, uh, are usually big events. You have an earthquake, or not even with as many. You have a tornado, you have a storm. Okay, it's over and so on. But many third world countries, you have practically a permanent drought. You have a permanent, for them, it's no longer we are approaching ecological catastrophe. We are already in it. And now I will make my second point. It's so important that precisely insofar as we recognize ecological threat, how serious it is, it's also a big topic of ideology today. And in one of my texts, I don't know, probably my listeners don't know it, I tried even to categorize four or five forms of ideology. First is the of ecological, ideological way to deal with ecological threats. First one is the obvious one. You know, it's, uh, the first one is uh, Donald Trump. You deny it. It's not serious. We can ignore it. Nature will fix itself. Obviously. It doesn't work. Uh, uh, you know what would be a good counter move here? Uh, what we should do to show how those who propagate this idea, they themselves don't really follow it. Like a friend from New Zealand told me, you know, all those rich guys who claim it's not serious, blah, blah, blah. Just look at the property market in New Zealand because the idea is they are far away. They will not feel it. They had now to limit, prohibit foreigners buying houses there. All the millionaires want a nice big house waiting for them there. In So, you know, it's the same tragedy as with Chernobyl. Incidentally, I didn't like the series. It's too ideological. But one detail which makes me most sad when Chernobyl took place, I was there, I'm old enough, is that, you know, the official Russian or Soviet line was... 
no danger in Kiev, everything okay. Yeah, but you know, the, the entire nomenclatura, who were claiming, they were claiming this publicly, instantly send their children and families far away and so on. So, okay, we, this is the falsity of this dinner, but let's say the first line is denial. The second line is, uh, is capital, in, through capitalism we can solve it, through taxing uh, polluters and so on and so on. Well, precisely, I'm not saying we shouldn't do it. Of course we should limit them, prohibit tax and so on. But uh, with real catastrophes like Fukushima, you can, it's, no, you need to act instantly in a much more co coordinated way. Uh, you can do certain things within capitalism, but we need a much larger international cooperation. I always mention this example, my good friend Jean-Pierre Dupuy, a very perspicuous catastrophe theorist. He was there as part of European delegation in Fukushima two days after. And he told me that for a couple of hours there was total panic, the Japanese government thought that the entire Tokyo area, 30 million people, will have to be evacuated. And what if something like this does happen? We need international cooperation. Where will these people go? Okay, if you think in a naive, rational way, it's clear what's the solution. Let's make a deal with Russia. There are still vast domains getting uh, warmer now in northern, northeastern Siberia. Yeah, but we don't have international bodies which could do this. So capitalism is not enough. Third thing is uh, science, believe in science. Science will solve it. No, it's, I don't even want to lose words with this. Uh, because, you know, science is not neutral today. Science is caught in the logic of capital. Of course, we need science. One cannot emphasize this enough. Because, you know, the problem with ecological crisis is that science, uh, si even to feel it, to you need science. Like, I remember now the big thing is global warming. But years ago, you remember, it was ozone hole. Well, no matter, no ma matter how much you look up, you will never see the ozone hole. It's a scientific construct. So that's the paradox. Even if the science we have today is partially for being misused by different technologies responsible with, we need science, but science is not the full answer. It's social change. Next, now we are getting forward. The two most tricky forms, the w next one is this naive naive uh, step out of anthropocentrism. The idea is we, humanity, became too arrogant. Uh, we have to respect more mother nature, return to balance. I'm fanatically against this solution. First, as I always repeat, it's my old slogan, you must know it, if Earth is our mother, it's a dirty bitch of a mother. Just think about coal, coal and oil are still main sources of energy. Can you even imagine what kind of catastrophes on our Earth should have happened in pre-human past? So that we... So, no, uh, here I'm even more of a pessimist in the sense that there is no natural balance to which we can return. And the last, I will stop, I will not talk endlessly, the last problem, nightmarish, for me is this. And this is ecological ideology at its purest. The answer of the system is 
personalized guilt. Let's say you are a leftist who criticizes big companies, lack of state regulation, and then ideology comes, not personally, of course, and tells you. But who are you to criticize it? Did you do all your duty? Did you separate all Coca-Cola cans? Did you recycle all your newspapers? It's a wonderful operation because on the one hand, it sabotages your criticism of social system. It makes you personal responsible. And in, at the same moment, in the same move, it offers you an easy way out. Don't worry, recycle coke cans and you did your duty for Mother Nature and so on and so on. So there are so many traps here, but the next problem I see here, and that's why I have a, to conclude this line, big distrust in populism. If you take ecological crisis seriously, and I do, absolutely, the situation is Again, so serious that, now I will say something horrible for some of my leftist friends, it's not that ordinary people are stupid, they are not no more stupid than we theorists, but they also basically don't know. I no longer have this old Maoist belief, if you as an intellectual are confused, listen to the ordinary people, you will get some authentic wisdom. But what if you don't get, they are also at a loss. So the solution to ecology is not simply more democracy. No, people have to be enlightened. Many more things have to happen. Always, this I even had a very friendly misunderstanding with my good friend Varoufakis, his DM project, I supported them. But you know, his point is we need real, authentic democracy, people represented, uh, uh, I told him, okay, but if you put immigration refugees to vote, there was a bright moment four or five years ago when, it's a great moment for Germany, when 60% of Germans were for more refugees that they can. No longer. If you do democracy in this naive sense, referendum, let's ask the people, you will get much harsher anti-immigrant policy than today. And I learned this from my Slovene colleagues who were in Brussels from government circles. They told me that, and this is one good argument for Brussels, when they have these closed committees debating refugees, they were much more pro-refugees than when speaking publicly. Because if you supported refugees publicly, it was not popular in their own country and so on. So, you know, that's the very sad thing for me today. We are in an open situation and there is no simple solution. That's my problem with so-called left populism. This was the great moment of Podemos. Listen to the ordinary people, to their, forget about ideology, as Iglesias, the guy, said, you know, of Podemos. Uh, forget about left-right, that's all bullshit. Listen to, yeah, but this goes only up to a certain point. Then, when you are on the edge of taking power, when you have to impose measures, sorry, populist game no longer works. You have to decide. You have sometimes even to impose unpopular measures. So let me just go through very quickly. It will not be so long. This is the first point, ecology. Second point, digital control. Uh, also, I'm now, 
It may be interesting people just finishing a new book, I'm crazy, on Hegel and the wired brain. Not just Neuralink, but this is, I think, the big thing happening today. More and more, we are succeeding. We, who are we? Scientists in directly linking our brain with the digital universe. And this, I think, is the mega game changer. We are literally losing our distance towards the external world. Okay, there are even religious versions of this singularity. We will all be part of some mega artificial intelligence. But what will this mean? Also new forms of control. We are already so much controlled and so on and so on. I see this as a mega problem. Usually in our liberal media, you focus on China. Yes, Chinese communists, everybody has already some uh, patriotic, uh, patriotic number, what is your social status and so on. Yeah, we are doing the same in our Western free countries, only in a little bit more refined, but maybe even more efficient ways. Don't you think that this is the problem today? I almost have a nostalgia for the good old uh, communist totalitarianism where you knew that you were controlled, you know, like uh, you talked on a phone, you heard the sound, or oh, they are listening to me, or you turn back, or oh, that guy is following me. Today, the tragedy is that you are controlled precisely when you think that you are exercising your full freedom. What can be more free than surfing the web, buying things, establishing contact, blah, blah, blah. You are controlled there. I think that, and that's why I'm still a communist, I would say, that this problem, the same as ecology, can be solved neither by market nor by state. Some new international solidarity, but not this moral solidarity with a certain executive power is needed. And the third one, of course, the problem of the refugees. People often think that, I even don't like this term, it's patronizing, I know. But you know why I oppose this simple humanitarian approach? Who open our gates and so on. First, I think it's a cunning trick by those in power, because in this way, you cook up, you instigate a conflict between two groups of poor people. Ordinary people, our own, who feel underprivileged, like, oh, they have all the money for refugees, not for us, unemployed here, and the poor refugees. And nothing makes liberals feel better than this. The pe poor people fighting each other, and then you feel the enlightened one against your own working class or unemployed. And so, so uh, I think that the crucial thing is to move the the... The mystification is to formulate the problem as a humanitarian one. You know, like, people are waiting, they're starving. We, will we open our hearts or not? No, we should move one step back and start to intervene into the situation which gave birth to refugees. Like, where are all those humanists now with what goes on now in Yemen? Here, refugees are created. American attack on Iraq. What goes on in Syria? Libya, all the glory goes here, even to Gaddafi. Were you watching TV in the last days when Gaddafi still made some interviews? Well, he said, really, are you crazy? You know what will happen in Libya if you overthrow me and so on. Not to mention uh, places of horror like Congo, which is an absolute nightmare. Uh, 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 a state which doesn't function, local warlords, but local warlords dealing with... Uh, 
companies selling them all the minerals. Congo is, for me, the metaphor of where we are today. On the one hand, a rogue state, warlords ruling, no public order, almost. On the other hand, country fully integrated as such. No contradiction here into global capitalism. So all I'm saying is, let's begin acting at this level. Otherwise, you get involved in so many contradictions. For example, my other problem with refugees is, are you aware what big business this is? Are you aware that smugglers turn around, according to some estimates, at least $10 billion? And that's what, what, this is what I would have worried. Okay, there are also families, children, and so on. But most of the refugees are now uh, young, aggressive people, who had enough money to pay, usually it costs to come from Syria or wherever there to Western Europe, it costs around 5,000, I think, a certain amount to get to Turkey, then a certain amount to be smuggled into southern Italy, wherever, and so on, and so on. And uh, so the true problem, I read a very good analysis, are those who are left behind there. Those are half safe, those are active and so on, those who reach Europe. Look at those. The pro in other words, the solution is not let's open our hearts and everybody should come to Europe. If you do this, you will get a populist uh, revolt in Europe and so on. It's a catastrophe. We have to, I know this may sound utopian, but if we will not begin to change, maybe even first with modest measures, to change the system, international, geopolitical, economic relations, and so on. For example, I was ashamed of I think my... I we're going to have time for one more question. I'm going to have to come in. I'm sorry. Please, like do it, feels, do it. Like yeah, I need you to change your... I will sorry. be ironic now. I need you now to change your outfit into leather, to be my domina and to... Oh, Lord. Yeah. Okay, sure. Um, it feels like a long time ago now, but you mentioned Chernobyl as something that you didn't like in Western the culture. I'm yes. talking yeah, now no, about... Absolutely. I'm going to ask you... What you Why? do like. Because no, no, what you do like, what do you enjoy? Uh, uh, well, it's well-made series. I liked the approach of how they portrayed it through this experience of selected groups of ordinary people, all that, and so on and so on. What I didn't like is the underlying thesis. It's all the sloppiness of clumsiness of Soviet bureaucracy. It's definitely not. Because first, as we learned from Fukushima, for Three Miles Island and so on, and, uh, Three Miles, that, whatever, in Pennsylvania, or where uh, before Chernobyl happened, accident, and so on, and so on, uh, the problem is still with us. It is, again, another ideological operation, Chernobyl, the TV series, to make you feel well. Oh. Is that your phone? Forget about it, yes. Uh, you know, the message is, yeah, of course, it was horrible, but, oh, it was the old Soviet Union, you know, and so on. The true story is much more subtle and paradoxical. I read a very good scientific analysis, very critical of Soviet Union, but it throws a totally new light on it. It shows that, you know, all the honor goes here to Soviet bureaucracy. They were fully aware of the dangers. And they were testing all the time 
don't uh, testing, making tests and so on, because they were aware of the danger. Don't forget the crucial fact that uh, the accident happened during a testing. You know, yes. if they were to do nothing, just ignore the dangers, nothing would have happened. So it's much more paradoxical, complex, uh, complex situation. No, no, no. They were even, if you measure the safety standards, they were much higher than those of Japan in Fukushima and so on. No, but what I especially don't like is, again, it's a little like the reason I don't like, I think, independent published uh, digitally only, a, a column on, on Handmaid's Tale. I hate these liberal dystopias where I think they are what I call, borrowing the phrase from my friend Fred Jameson, nostalgia for the present. All this nightmarish vision of Republic of Gilead, it's basically to make you feel where, but we are not yet there. We are in our wonderful, liberal, still permissive society. We have gay marriages, abortion, whatever. But they never raise the true question, which is, how come then that they are winning? What is wrong with our liberal, permissive societies that fundamentalists are getting stronger and stronger? And this is the big misunderstanding. I'm not for Trump. I'm not crazy. But I find suspicious this obsession with Donald Trump. No, sorry. Do you, think, do you think Trump will win again? Well, I hope not, but I will say something very cynical. Uh, obviously, the Democratic Party, not the left wing, the establishment, is doing all possible to make him re-elected. Against somebody like Joe Biden, he has quite serious, he has quite serious chances to win again. Uh, and uh, uh, on the other hand, not that I have any Trump is an ethical catastrophe and so on, but I think he's nonetheless a cunning opportunist. And what is one of the interesting phenomena now in the United States, don't you think, is this subtle radical conservative like John Bolton, uh, growing criticism of him. They notice something that Trump talks a lot but even from a conservative standpoint, did he attack Iran? No. Maybe he will. No. Did he attack uh, North Korea? No. He is friendly with it. So that uh, uh, my, not friend, but I respect her greatly. She was lambasted, prohibited, Susan Sarandon, who was fanatically the actress, you know, who was fanatically for Bernie Sanders and got disgusted by what by the way, Hillary, I think this was the main reason of the democratic defeat, the way they crushed Bernie Sanders. And then I know some of them, many voters were just disgusted by it. But what I, uh, uh, what I want to say is that, uh, is that uh, 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 the reason I said, ironically, of course, vote for Trump, you know, is that... Uh, and it happened well, up to a point, what I hoped for, is that Trump nonetheless unsettled, disturbed the hegemonic consensus and opened up the space for the left pole to do the same. My hypothesis is no democratic socialism, Bernie Sanders and so on, Alexandria Octavio Cortes, it's part of the same process. That wouldn't have happened without Trump. And my fear 
is that if the wrong Democrat wins, like Biden or who, it will be back to the old establishment. And that's the worst thing that can happen because it means somebody more John Bolton-like, you know. Mm -hmm. Trump, horrible as it may sound, I can, that's my lesson from living under communism when I was young, things can always get a little bit worse, even if they are really bad. Trump is not the worst. So Susan Sarandon, yes, she said something quite intelligent. She says, but are you aware that probably Hillary would have already bombed Iran and uh, and uh, North Korea even maybe because traditionally Democrats are much more interventionists in the United States. So don't fall into this fascination, negative fascination by Trump as the ultimate evil. He is a nightmare, like ethically, ethico-politically, vulgarity, and so on and so on. But he is not the worst thing that I can imagine. Just finally, I want this is slightly unconnected, but I want to ask you if you thought what parallels, if any, there are between formerly Yugoslavia and the breakup of it and what's happening at the moment in the UK now with the United Kingdom and the discussion around I Brexit. I think there is some important difference. That's why I never supported the breakup of Yugoslavia, but I don't mourn it because, you know, the problem is this one. My basic reading is that the civil war in the early 90s was the moment of truth. All the tensions just kept under lead, kept under control, exploded there. All that was wrong, the antagonism, just kept under control in social Yugoslavia, exploded. So uh, I will put it like this. Uh, I think Yugoslavia was really dead the moment Milosevic took over. I don't blame the Serbs. What Milosevic means to me is a certain logic which means, to put it very simply, communist nomenclatura saw the end of the system and they grasped with some kind of primitive, intuitive cunningness that the only way for them to retain legitimacy was to play the nationalist card. So already at that point, 85, 86, the game was over. You don't have to wait for a Slovene secession or whatever. I was there. I never supported it, but I saw the logic. Slovene secession wasn't even a national. It was as simple as that for 80% of the people. It was, we see the war coming. Every idiot saw it. Let's get out to avoid being caught into it. It was, okay, you can say egotism, but it was not full nationalism. So uh, 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 I think that Yugoslavia was nothing very specific here. It was part of the same process like the caricatural model of this process are those southern Soviet, ex-Soviet republics, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, where usually the old KGB boss then proclaims himself a new religious leader, natural savior or whatever and so on and so on. So uh, here I disagree with my leftist friends who nonetheless mourn Yugoslavia and so on, said, couldn't you remain together? No, it was too late. The moment Milosevic was there, it was, we overthrow Milosevic or it's over, or it's over. And there were some attempts in some party circles 
to do this, but simply, I know that, and I don't like them, but the Slovene communists tried like crazy to build a coalition before so-called free elections, late 80s. They tried to get Bosnians, uh, Macedonians, Croats, and so on, but they were too scared. They, the only solution, the last hope for Yugoslavia was a kind of... Uh, was a, a, a coalition of majority of republics against Serbia. Not Serbia as Serbs, but Serbia as Milosevic. And the West didn't see this clearly. The main culprit is here, United States. United States were obsessed by the idea is to, to retain stability in a certain region. You need a strong local power there. And they counted on even Serbia, like Serbia is the strongest unit there, nation. We need strong Serbia to guarantee this was, uh, this was a, a catastrophic decision, and so on and so on. So I think, was that war necessary? No, absolutely not. Even, I think, with a more rational, diplomatic, maybe even military pressure, it could have been prevented. When the war started, serious one, Slovenia was a small thing and so on, in Croatia, especially in Bosnia, a small scale international intervention just to set up the rules could have prevented it. You know, when friends were telling me there are such strange things going on there, you need psychoanalysis to understand the Balkan madness. No, I think it's simple, brutal survival ego. You don't need. The only place you need psychoanalysis is to analyze the stupidity of Western Europe. How the, that's where you need psychoanalysis and so on. It was sad because, again, the big lesson for we Yugoslavia thought we are the most liberal capitalism, we will do it better. No, even the hardline communist states manage disintegration like Soviet Union, Czech Republic and Slovakia much better than we. That was the tragedy of it. With good, firm international pressure, and by international I don't mean United States, I mean why not? United States in cooperation with maybe Russia or whomever, it could have been prevented, the war. Slavoj Zizek, thank you so much for taking the time. I'm grateful to you to allow a madman like me. <laughs> Cheers. Thanks very much. Thank